This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. Today's guest is Rhett Butler, the founder of Manga Bay, one of the most popular environmental science and conservation news sites in the world. He has such an interesting background in some wild stories. We talk about rainforests, deforestation, climate change, bioacoustic monitoring, close encounters with elephants and gorillas, and what it's like to be friends with Jane Goodall. Yeah, it's a super interesting, very wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Rhett Butler. Well, Rhett, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I'm a huge fan. And I wanted to start by discussing what you just said to me before we before we started to record. You very low-key dropped that you were on a conversation with Jane Goodall, which for somebody like myself is the the dream of all dreams to be able to have a conversation with Jane. So how did that happen? Or had, did you know her previously? Um, yeah, so Jane is a friend of mine, so we connect, um, I don't know, several times a year, I would guess. She's actually on our advisory board. Oh, cool. And um, yeah, so when she's passing through San Francisco, I try to connect with her. Um, case, it was her 85th birthday, and um, Leonardo DiCaprio had put together a little dinner party for her in Los Angeles, and so um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to that, and then we did a follow-up conversation uh i guess the next day um just about her about her birthday and just kind of caught up on things that's amazing what was that dinner party like uh dinner party was definitely a collection of a-listers from hollywood so um (laughs) it was interesting i mean i'm not really a hollywood person but i definitely recognize a lot of people in the room so um yeah so it, it was it was a fun event um uh, you know, Leo said a bunch of really nice things. Uh, Jane got up and made some great comments. And overall, I thought it was a, a really nice evening. And it was at a vegan restaurant, which, um, you know, I think is a good message. Yeah, definitely. Did you did you connect originally through Manga Bay? Uh, yes, I did. So um, I, I, I think she reached out. I mean, this is a while ago. This is maybe five years ago. Mm-hmm. I think she reached out to me. Um, and then we met up in person when she was in San Francisco and that was sort of the beginning of things. That's amazing. So I want to dig into Manga Bay a little bit. I mean, such an incredible journalistic approach to specifically talking about wildlife, wildlife conservation. Can you talk a little bit about the origin of that? Because I mean, it started in the 1990s, correct? It or early two thousands. So you, uh, you must've been very ahead of the curve when you started, uh, moving into the space. Yeah. So actually next month will be 20 years. Wow. So 1999. Um, but it, it, it was really inspired earlier than that. Um, I was fortunate to have a mother as a travel agent and a father who traveled a lot for business, so a lot of airline miles. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, my parents prioritized travel. And I always loved herps, uh, so reptiles and amphibians. And my view was the best herps were in the rainforest. So I would lobby to go to the rainforest. And a few times my parents took my sister and I, um, you know, to, to these places. And so, um, as I got older, I became aware of what was happening to forests and other ecosystems around the world. And so the first time it really affected me personally was when I was 12, I went to Eastern Ecuador and we stayed with a fairly traditional indigenous community near Yasuni. Mm-hmm. And I had an amazing time, uh, with village catching fish and looking for frogs and things like that. Came back, and a few months later, there was a story in the San Francisco Chronicle about this huge oil spill, which had happened on the Rio Napo, up river from where I had, had been. So basically, the whole area I just visited was now coated in oil. And, and so all I could think about is what had happened to my friends in the forest and the animals. And so that was the first time I really experienced firsthand destruction of these places. And the thing that actually led me to start Manga Bay was a few years later, I was in um, high school, and I went to Borneo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malaysian Borneo. And I had another amazing experience where, uh, you know, I hiked in this beautiful forest and 
I mean, particularly there's one moment that just really stood out to me. And that was, I was by this natural pool with a little waterfall coming in and, um, this wild orangutan passed over, you know, probably uh, 30 feet away. Yeah. So that, that was really special for me. And, um, I, you know, I left and got home and I, I kept in correspondence with the scientists there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is before I had access to email. So it was, it was writing letters. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a few months later that forest was pulped to make paper. Um, mm-hmm. and now it's, an, and now it's an oil palm plantation. Um, and so once that happened, I decided I want to raise awareness. So when I started college, I began writing a book about rainforests. So my major in college was actually uh, management science economics, which is like math and econ. Mm-hmm. I had nothing to do with journalism or biology, um, but I was passionate about that. So um, on on the side, I began writing this book about rainforests. So thanks to AP credit, I was able to finish school a year early. And so I spent that extra year working on the on this book. Um, I finished it. Um, it went through peer review. Or, sorry, I found a publisher. Went through peer reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, the publisher said, "Okay, um, looks good. We're ready to publish this." Um, but because we're an academic press, we don't have money to put pictures in it. So we're going to run some grayscale images, mm-hmm. um, which to me defeated the purpose of what I was trying to do, which was convey the beauty of these of these ecosystems. Yeah. And so I thought, "Yeah, I didn't write this for, for money. I wrote it for impact." And so I decided to put it on the internet so you read it for free. Um, I love that. And I named it Manga Bay, after, uh, which is derived from this island off Madagascar, um, which is a very beautiful island. It's kind of like my idea of paradise. It's uh, surrounded by uh, reefs. It has tropical forest on it. Um, it's cu- it has all sorts of lemurs and interesting herps and other you know uh, unique creatures. And so um, that kind of was a good name, I thought. And it was unique. So if you typed Manga Bay uh, as it was spelled, um, into like Alta Vista or Excite or whatever the search engine was, um, the only thing that would come up would be my website. So I could see who was talking about it and, you know, referencing it and what, when, whatnot. So that was the origin of the website. Wow. That's amazing. I, this is <laughs> a weird thing for me to pick up on and ask a question about based on everything else that was really powerful in that story. But I'm always fascinated because to me, growing up, I've always been fascinated with the big animals, right? The lions, the grizzly bears, the mountain gorillas. And the more I've dug into wildlife and different species, I've found that the more you learn about any specific species and their patterns of behavior, that they're all fascinating, beautiful animals that have incredible life stories and families and emotions that I find it really interesting for somebody for, for herps specifically was what drove you to those animals more so than some of the megafauna that most people are traditionally drawn to? I mean, that's a tough question. I think it's a combination of, uh, well, like frogs. I'm really into frogs. I think it's the the fact they go through this metamorphosis. There's also a huge diversity in terms of, um, size, color, behavior. So there's just a lot to sort of, um, unpack when you're dealing with, with say frogs. Mm -hmm. Um, among like reptiles and really into lizards. And I think it's because I grew up in an area that has, I mean, lizards are really common. So I was just used to, you know, seeing lizards. And so when I saw a picture of like an iguana for the first time, it kind of blew my mind that this thing could be, could be green, like a lizard could be green. And then I, you know, later in life I saw chameleons, which, you know, are all different colors. And then there's this, you know, blue anole off this island off Columbia. And that was again, mind blowing. So I think it's, it's the fact there's such a variety of, of these creatures that, I'm used to seeing in my own backyard that mm-hmm. really drew me to them. And having been in these rainforests since the time you were 12, sounds like you have the coolest parents in the world. Uh, <laughs> have you, I mean, that's such a terrible thing to think about. You have this beautiful experience of an orangutan passing over you in, in Borneo, and then all of a sudden it becomes a palm oil plantation. Obviously, in the news, everything is you just hit over the head every day with these horrible travesties that are going on when it comes to deforestation and palm oil. Being somebody who's spent time in these areas for the last 20, 25, 30 years, what is the situation on the ground right now? How bad is it? And is there anything that you cling on to as like a sign of hope that things are going in a better direction? Um, well, day to day, it can definitely be uh, depressing. Uh, you know, there's large scale destruction and degradation happening all around the world. Um, I'm an optimist by nature, which, you know, it, I think color, you know, obviously color is the way that I approach things, but I think if we step back and take a look at some of the long-term trends, 
there are a few reasons to be hopeful with forests. But um, that said, you have it's, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. And mm -hmm. I feel like the last two years have been more steps back. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the great um, success stories um, until very recently was Brazil. So Brazil had a very high deforestation rate. Um, until the mid 2000s, which has been greatly reduced since then. Mm -hmm. And a big reason because, uh, for that for that reduction has been better better monitoring. So we can see what's happening. And um, if there's a political will to take action, you can at least um, take action. You no longer have ignorance as an excuse. Right. So I think that that's much better data around these issues is, is helping. Um, I think uh, uh, there's better communication. So between... Um, NGOs, civil society groups, communities who can you used to have like an isolated community that, you know, logging trucks would come in and there's essentially nothing they could do. Now they can talk to other communities and learn from experience um, and just communicate that this is happening to them. So the sense of isolation is, is disappearing. Um, so that's another positive thing. I think there's also just greater recognition of the services that are afforded by um, these ecosystems. So, I mm -hmm. mean, it's very, it's very human centric, obviously, but um you know, most decision making is driven by the interest of humans. So you need to kind of think in, think in these terms when you're trying to pitch a policymaker on why you need to save forests or protect the ocean or or mangroves or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And for palm oil specifically, I think that's such an interesting one because the largest consumers of or, or sourcers and producers of palm oil are large corporations that we buy products from every single day. Do you think? there has been a stronger legislative push to, to stop that type of production in such harmful ways. Yeah. I mean, palm oil is interesting because it's really a B2B play. Mm -hmm. Um, cause most people in the West don't buy palm oil. I mean, that's different in, in Asia. You'd actually buy palm oil instead of like olive oil, you know, for cooking. Um, and so I think, I mean, that's one reason why a lot of these, these activists have targeted these big companies and these big companies have started to adopt these, uh, zero deforestation commitments, which um, essentially they're committing to not cutting down forests, not developing peatlands, uh, not exploiting communities and, uh, you know, uh, employing like uh, free prior informed consent before mm -hmm. developing plantation. So that said, most of the action has not been in the government. It's been in the private sector, um, uh, which obviously limits the, the impact of, of how you can sort of transform a sector. Um, legislatively the main play uh sort of in the west is around biofuels and so uh malaysia and indonesia are pitching palm oil as you know a, a sustainable biofuel um, but if you actually do the carbon accounting and look at you know the land use conversion um you know it's the the, the carbon savings are non-existent so mm -hmm. um that's been really important to look to do the life cycle analysis and understand that um you know there's deforestation involved so in Europe, um, legislatively, uh, the EU has said that, you know, uh, palm oil does not qualify as for the renewable fuel standards, so it's not going to get any subsidies. Um, so that, that's important, but I would say most of the action has really been in the private sector so far in palm oil. Um, that said, I mean, the palm oil sector is really interesting because the prices collapsed over the past couple of years, which, you know, is not a surprise to anyone whatsoever. But um the way that governments in Asia respond to that is they're trying to create new sources of demand. Mm -hmm. So they're essentially trying to lock in um, demand for biofuel. And so they set um, mandates for uh, blending palm oil-based biodiesel into, into fuels. So, um, you know, you, there'll, there'll be more palm oil consumption. So basically just finding alternate, alternative markets when the private market so if consumers are kind of pushing back on the corporation saying, hey, we don't want to be eating these products or sourcing these products that have palm oil in it, they're basically finding alternative markets, which is the reason going after governments and legislation is so much more important because they can actually put the mandates on to help cite or lower that significantly. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but again, you would really need action from other governments, you know, outside the West. So mm -hmm. places like China, Pakistan, um, India, uh, even Malaysia, Indonesia. So, um, the pol the policy policy approach, it's going to take a long time and be pretty complicated. Yeah. I, I find China to be so interesting in the sense that outwardly they have such a stigma for obviously like the exotic wildlife trade, ivory trade, and 
uh, palm oil, like like you were just mentioning there, in terms of like finding the alternative markets for that. But at the same time, it seems like they're started. They've been much more progressive in terms of helping to limit the ivory trade, setting aside wild land strictly for kind of altruistic national park purposes. Do you feel that in general, Asia is becoming more progressive in terms of how they interact with wild places and wildlife? Or is it, again, kind of that three steps forward, two steps back type scenario? Um, I think it's three steps forward, two steps back. I mean, so China is really interesting because their domestic policy has shifted quite significantly in recently recent years. So that's Everything from creating protected areas to, you know, banning hunting to um, enacting, you know, sustainable, sustainable policies around, um, uh, you know, resource use internally. But um, the problem is, is that their footprint is much bigger than, you know, what they're doing domestically. So they have policies that apply to overseas activity like their forestry companies, but none of those are enforced. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Chinese companies are supposed to. Um, adhere to certain principles when they're, you know, doing logging overseas, but they don't actually do that. So um, that's a challenge you see in a lot of countries. I mean, I think the U.S. is, you know, also an example of that. But I think kind of the most, um, one of the sharpest examples is Singapore. So Singapore is, you know, you go there, it it feels, it always feels like a a city from the future. Um, You know, they're investing a lot in, um, uh, you know, like green tech and things like that. But if you look at the companies that are deforesting uh, Indonesia, a lot of them are based in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So it's like the impact goes well beyond Singapore's borders. Yeah. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. What do you, what helps you cling on to hope? And I know you said you're an optimistic person, but when you hear things like that, what, what do you cling hope on to? And like when you are looking at helping to move the needle forward, are there low hanging fruit opportunities that you see as, as things that we can collectively start focusing on to help mitigate some of these negative impacts that are, I know that's a really broad question. Yeah. I mean, so I think for every, for every particular issue, there are opportunities and so, you know, some are more low hanging than others. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at forests, uh, ecosystem services seems to be a relatively low hanging fruit. Um, so right now, most of the conversation is around carbon, which, you know, the value is not very high because there's no, you know, binding framework on climate. Right. But forests do a lot more than just, um, you know, sequester carbon. I mean, I think water is a much bigger play. Um, so if you start, as the science gets better and better, you can, you, you can show that farmers in the American Midwest benefit from forests in Central America or South America, or even more locally, if you look at cities in Brazil that are fed by, um, rain from the Amazon, you can start to make an economic case saying that, you know, if you, if the Amazon tips to a different type of ecosystem, you may lose your rainfall and that mm-hmm. will have major economic impacts. And so I think those kind of arguments are relatively low hanging fruit. Um, in places like Borneo, um, one of the top complaints you get from local communities when the for- when a forest is converted um, to oil palm is the ambient temperature increases uh, by as much as five or eight degrees, wow. uh, which, you know, may not sound like a lot to someone in the United States, but if you're living at your thermal maximum already, which you are at Borneo and you're primarily working outside and you don't have, you know, you're not, you don't have air conditioning and things like that. It's pretty hard to have a livelihood if temperatures increase by that much. And yeah. so you also lose your water supply. So you have to buy water or boil water. So it adds a lot of labor costs to, you know, producing food and you can't eat oil palms or, uh, you can't eat, you know, you, you, you can't eat, uh, oil palm fruit. So, um, you're not getting that benefit either. So there's a lot of kind of these hidden costs that you sort of factor them into these, um, you know, decisions that, uh, it, it makes the argument better for, uh, preserving wild areas. Right. Do you, when, when you're lo- talking about managing Manga Bay and the direction that Manga Bay is going in, we talk a lot on the podcast about, the difficult balance between telling people the true story as to what's going on and um, helping to shed light on ways that wild areas are being impacted negatively while also fostering kind of the love and wonder and the desire to teach people about these animals in the first place and these wild places in the first place, just to get people to, to care because ultimately you have to care about things that you want to help to protect. And oftentimes I think in today's, uh, way that media is traditionally 
disseminated, you kind of get towards those sensationalized headlines. Negative headlines tend to do better in terms of clicks. And how do you balance as a journalistic publication uh, online, like how that mix of wonder versus like true storytelling versus conservation and scientific. So like, what is kind of your North star in terms of what stories you want Manga Bay to tell? Yeah, it is hard. I mean, I've been told that Manga Bay is the most depressing site on the internet uh, many times. <laughs> so um, it is challenging. Like we don't want to sugarcoat it, but at the same time you can look for, um, you know, stories that are positive and, and solutions. I mean, I think one problem about how journalism is typically done is um, if you have a solution that's 80% good, um, journalism typically focuses on the 20% that, that's not working. And so it ends up, instead of like talking about a solution, you talk about the problems with the solution. And I mean, I, I'm sort of guilty of it, but I think, um, you know, it's a major problem in this space. And so mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, one thing we try to look for and we could probably do much more of is, um, you know, making, trying to connect people with the problems and help them understand why this affects them personally and also looking for crossover issues. So, um, you know, I think a lot of environmental issues have become very political. So, you know, like climate change. Um, Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that a lot of people who don't believe in climate change um, believe in a lot of things that, that need to be done to address climate change. So sometimes it's a matter of modifying like what you're focusing on to reach certain audiences. Um, But generally I do think it, it, it is, I mean, Manga Bay and, and other outlets don't do the best job of highlighting solutions and positive things just because there is such a, uh, and a torrential downpour of, of negative stories. So right. um, I do think it is something that is a gap in the space and there is a need for more, I mean, it has to be real, but positive storytelling that's credible. Do you feel like that's something you're trying to push at Manga Bay or do you feel like Manga Bay has its niche of, of telling the, the truth of a lot of these conservation issues that are going on. And that's more something that somebody else would kind of fall into. No, we're definitely interested in, in highlighting solutions. I mean, again, real solutions. Um, yeah. uh, you know, we've been trying to, well, we just launched a reporting project that's uh, called conservation solutions. And we are where we are, are trying to sort of direct the reporting around again, real solutions um, from the field. So some positive stories. And so, um, we, we do recognize that as a gap for us and it's something that we, that we would like to improve on. So kind of shifting the focus a little bit for that series on what's actually working in conservation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to shift a little bit to some of your travel experiences and get a sense of why you care so passionately about these areas. Cause I've heard some crazy stories, uh, through the, what is that, that phrase through the grapevine? Do you know that? Yeah. What is it? I heard through, through the, the grapevine. grapevine. Oh, I was right. Yep. Uh, like I heard there was a story that you almost got killed by an elephant. Is that true? Well, I wouldn't say almost killed by an elephant. I would say it was a scary <laughs> situation. Uh, someone else almost got killed by an elephant, the person what person I was with. But um, what happened was, um, this is uh, in 2007, I was in um, um, this area above the Masai Mara, where, which is forested. And um, I was with a guy who had set up a, an ecotourism camp, like a tented camp a long time before and he had they kind of abandoned it um, about, I don't know, it's like 10 years earlier. And so we were going back to see, well, if the camp was still there and kind of assess the situation to see if it might be worth opening again for tourism. I mean, I was just along for the ride. I'm not assessing the tourism potential, but sure. yeah, I was along for the ride. And so, um, you know, we got there it was, you know, interesting place. And one of the things we noticed right away was there was a lot of damage from elephants. So there's like a lot of elephants in this forest. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went for a hike and we were, you know, doing our thing and we were with, um, some former poachers who now were, you know, helping this guy with his, with his camp. And they were, you know, essentially become like forest rangers. And, um, we were out walking. We had a couple close encounters with, uh, you know, forest buffalo, which are you know quite dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, we weren't, we weren't really looking for any particular. We we're just, you know, kind of going for a nature hike to, to sort of, you know, see what was out there. And, um, we came because the forest is so damaged, you had kind of like these walls of, of vines over, you know, kind of like crushed and dead trees. So your visibility wasn't very good. And so we were walking along and then all of a sudden uh, these uh, they were called the Perco people, the Perco, um, the Perco, I guess, guys, you'd call them stopped. And they were sort of listening and they could they were sensing that an, that elephants were nearby Um so that was just like, so they were kind of like stopped and looking around and then 
everything slowed down. Um, so we heard this twig break, um, this uh, Taraka, which is like this beautiful bird, flew off. And then all of a sudden, like elephants just charged from this wall of vegetation at us. And um, I, I'd been charged a year earlier in, um, on foot in uh, Gabon. And mm-hmm. there I, you know, after that happened, I, I learned what you should do if you get charged by an elephant. And so I was trying to look for a tree to get behind, but there were no big trees in the forest. So it was really, we all just ran, we were all just running, you know, trying to get away from the elephants, basically. Yeah. So it was bagging, trying to be evasive. And so the elephants chased us for, I mean, it seemed like a long time. It was probably a minute, uh, but we all got separated. And, um, so then, you know, the elephants passed and we're thinking, okay, it's okay. And then, um, we started walking and then the elephants, like another set of elephants were like charging. So it was like a second wave of elephants. (laughs) And, um, so, you know, then, um, you know, that, that sort of dissipated. And then we heard this horrible screaming and trumpeting noise, um, like human screaming and trumpeting. And it was just like this God awful noise. Um, And then this guy, uh, like one of the other guys was ran out and said, uh, the elephant's got George, he's dead. And then all of a sudden more elephants came. And so we're running again. And so, yes. yeah, so just zigzagging, you know, trying to, obviously you can't run an, outrun an elephant. So you're just trying to, you know, get out of the way basically. Right. So then eventually, you know, they passed and, you know, then we kind of like came together and uh, we went to go look for George. And so we're, you know, calling out for George, looking through the, looking at the forest and then, it was probably, you know, 10 or 15 minutes later, uh, we heard George, you know, yells back and stumbles through the oh, forest. Oh, thank God. He's, yeah, he's covered in blood. Um, oh. And so what happened was, is um, one of the elephants, he jumped into one of these like piles of vegetation and the elephant uh, basically came down and was trying to, I guess, tusk him. And um, he sort of, he guided the tusks away from his central, the central part of his body. Uh, but it, it went through his bicep and then kind of like the, like his flank. Um, oh. And the elephant's also stomping him. Um, but because it was muddy and like there's a lot of vegetation, it gave it gave a lot. So he didn't get crushed. He was just, you know, kind of giving. And then he screamed, and that freaked out the elephant, and the elephant ran away. So that was a noise we heard. Um, so he oh. was, I, we made kind of like a crutch for him. He was able to walk. Um, but it was, a, it was quite a scary encounter. Oh, that's um, horrifying. I was kind of, I, I probably posed the question in too light of a way. I just assumed you're like, oh yeah, an elephant charged me. I got out of the way. That I didn't know somebody actually got hurt. That's terrible. Yeah, but I mean, he's fine now. But it was definitely a, a scary experience. It could have been much worse. Is that typical behavior for an elephant? My understanding was like, if they're in must, like they might kind of, uh, kind of charge through you if they're try- if you're standing between them and a pack of females or something like that. I didn't know that sometimes they'll actively like that. Sounds like that guy was being attacked. Well, so we heard afterwards is that um, these elephants were actually um, involved in some human wildlife conflicts. And so mm. essentially there had been a lot of deforestation and their their traditional habitat had been was now occupied by like maize or, or corn fields. And they would go to the court. They would like, you know, raid the cornfields and the villagers would attack them. So they were you had, had a very high density of elephants because they were getting concentrated by this, um, you know, essentially encroachment. But then they also had bad experiences with humans. So. Um, I don't think it was necessarily the elephants attacking, like trying to attack us. They were just scared and trying to run away. And that George basically like got between the elephants and where they were trying to go. And this elephant just reacted that way. So um, it's not a normal situation to be in. Uh, But we didn't get that full story until after uh, like that night, basically. Yeah, it's more of like a protective response more than anything. Yeah, it wasn't an aggressive thing. Yeah, geez. I mean... The one good takeaway is it sounds like there's a lot of elephants in there, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was um, that was definitely exciting. Um, I've also had you know experiences with other wildlife, but that was um, <laughs> that was definitely one of the more. Scary Would you say that's the top most scary experience you've put yourself in in some of these travels? Or is there anything uh, else that trumps no. that? No. Yeah, no. There are things that trump that. So I mean, humans can be scarier. So I've had some encounters with humans that have been pretty scary. Um, in terms of wildlife, um, I had a close encounter with a silverback gorilla, um, in Gabon, a lowland gorilla, um, a year before that elephant. And, uh, it was a situation where, again, we were, we were going out and assessing this forest for ecotourism potential. And we, and I, I was, there was a guy who was training the rangers, the rangers and myself. 
and I was, I was the biggest guy, like tallest person, mm-hmm. uh, which is significant later in the story. But, um, so we were, we were, we were going through the forest and we, and we encountered a group of, of lowland gorillas. And so we were really excited. You know, they kind of ran off mm-hmm. and we were talking about how exciting it was, but then the, the male silverback came back and, um, then charged. And, um, I, again, I was sort of the dominant male cause I was the largest person sure. by far. And so he targeted me. And so I just got down and tried to be submissive, you know, not make eye contact, got down on my knees. And he, he basically ran by me and swung, kind of like swung his fist. I mean, he's beating his chest too. So right. and when you have a full grown silverback gorilla running, it's, I mean, it's, that's a lot of weight. And so everything's shaking, you know, I feel the air go by my face when he kind of swings his fist and runs to the other side. Yeah. And then he stops and sits back on his haunches and then does it. He does that several times. Um, and so that was, that was really, that was quite terrifying. Um, and everyone I was <laughs> I with, imagine. you know, everyone I, I was with just, you know, <laughs> took off. So they were all, you know, out of harm's way basically. And so like the, the, the final time, like at one point he kind of sat back on his haunches and kind of relaxed and I, I could see that that was my opportunity. So I just took off and ran. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was, um, that was, that was, that definitely got my heart rate up. And the interesting thing <laughs> was, it was a year or two, or maybe it was like two years later, I went to a zoo. I think it was, um, the Smithsonian in, um, DC. And I saw a silverback gorilla there, uh, who just came, you know, came and looked at me and I wasn't fearful, but my body, like the, the, my body just kicked in. And so all of a sudden my heart rate went up and I could feel the blood like mm-hmm. surging through my veins, even though I wasn't physically scared. My body had this like reaction, which was, you know, really strange to me. Yeah. I think it's always fascinating when no matter how technologically advanced we get and how good at medicine we get, there's always just this instinctual thing where we really just haven't evolved that much over the last 10,000 years. And it's always so interesting when you mentally can say, I don't need to be reacting this way. Like even when you're going to give like a big public speaking engagement or something, you're like, I don't need to be this stressed out and prepared prepared for it or something like that. And your body is just like reacting in all these incredibly uncomfortable ways. That's making it difficult to do the task at hand. It's, it's, it, I don't know. There's part of me that like is almost excited and thrilled by that. Cause you're like, it just seems so like authentically human. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to your roots. I mean, yesterday I actually was lucky enough to encounter a mountain lion. Um, what was, yeah. So I, was I thought you were in San bike. Francisco right now. Um, so I live outside San Francisco. I live oh. about 30 miles south and I live near a big open space that goes all the way to the ocean. Dope. And um, I was riding my bike to go swimming and it was 5 a.m. And um, I heard these deer alarm calling, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird. I mean, I'm not used to deer alarm calling around here. And um, so I'm riding and all of a sudden um, a young juvenile male um, mountain lion just runs about 20 or 30 feet in front of me across Epic. the road. And, um, yeah, so once that happened, my heart rate went way back. <laughs> I mean, again, I wasn't afraid. I was, you know, I wanted, I was you know, really excited, but, um, the rest of my bike ride, I basically like was, I was riding really fast. I mean, I was, you know, fully amped up. It was, um, it was pretty cool. And then when I got home, I, um, did a little research and there'd been a mountain lion sighting, I think three days before, um, like a hundred yards from where I saw him. Oh, wow. so, and it was actually captured on a security cam. So, um, yeah, it was, it was cool. It's definitely mountain lion. That's so. amazing. I, I love when you can think of like those massive creatures. I mean, in LA, like we have them and it's just awesome to know that in such an urban environment, an animal like that can still exist and hang around. Like there's that incredible Steve winter photo of the mountain lion in Griffith park, like with a Hollywood sign behind it. I love that. I mean, even around here, like I was driving through my neighborhood. I live in Silver Lake, which is like 10 minutes north of downtown, like six months ago. And there were just two massive coyotes, like bigger than I've seen. I grew up on Cape Cod in in Mass. And like, we have coyotes there, but I had never seen coyotes this big, just walking around down the street. It's, It's fun when you can see big animals like that, that can coexist to some level of cooperation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool though. I've never seen that. A mountain yeah, I've, got, I've gotten really lucky. It's actually my second one I've seen in four years in this neighborhood. So the other one, I work from home and 
um, I have a window that kind of faces like a little, I don't know, I guess forest margin area in my neighbor's yard. And usually there are often deer back there. So I mm-hmm. don't really pay attention, but I was working. And then out of the corner of my eye, what I thought was a deer, I saw like a tail. And so I, yeah, I looked at it and I realized, oh no, that's, that's a mountain lion. It was also another small male. So my guess is that, you know, it's looking for territory. And, um, yeah, so it was really exciting. It was probably just 10 feet from me. I mean, I was, I was inside behind a window, so it's a little bit different, but, um, yeah, again, I, I looked out, I, I, um, I, I, I actually contacted Fish and Wildlife just because you're supposed to report sightings and, mm-hmm. uh, there had been a sighting, uh, I think it was like five days before, just a couple blocks away. So it was probably the same one. On, on kind of a more positive note than you getting attacked by elephants and gorillas, because obviously I love wildlife, would rather talk about more positive experiences. Can you think back on your travels? Is there one moment that really sticks out to you as in a place that just seemed perfectly wild or you saw a sighting that you never would have expected you would see or just like in that moment you could get really present and be very thankful for the fact that you got an opportunity to be in a place as wild as you were in. Uh, yeah. So I think the experience in Borneo with the wild orangutan passing over sure. was that moment for me. Um, I mean, it wasn't surprising cause there are a lot of orangutans in the area, but it was just, this is a really special moment for me. And I just always think back as that was kind of the moment that inspired me to, to go down this path. Um, I mean, I think one of the most surprising wildlife sightings was, um, in 1997, um, I was in Madagascar and I saw an I.I., which is this really strange lemur with a baby. Um, wow. And it was the first sighting they'd had in this park in like 20 years. So um, and I was just coming back from a, like a night hike and we were driving and I saw this eye shine and, you know, we stopped and it was this uh, mother I.I. with baby right there. And it was it was really amazing. That's incredible. So, so you have Wild Madagascar too as kind of a separate project to Manga Bay. What about Madagascar? Or is it part of the Manga Bay umbrella? Um, but either way, like what it, what about Madagascar specifically spoke to you? Where you're like, I really want to focus on this area. Yeah, so Wild Madagascar uh, is a site that I started back around 2004. It's a little bit embarrassing now because I have no time to work on it, so it's it's quite out of date. It needs a refresh, but um, yeah, I mean, the thing about Madagascar is since I was a little kid, I was just um, amazed by the diversity of wildlife and mm-hmm. the strangeness of the wildlife. I mean, so of course it has great herbs, so it has amazing, uh, you know, chameleons, geckos, frogs, things like that. Um, but also you have lemurs and all these other, you know, crazy animals and, and plants. I mean, like the baobab trees. And so I, I, you know, I would read these really old like life books and and there'd just be amazing pictures of Madagascar. So it was my dream to always go there. And um, I was able to save, en- save up enough money um, where, I was able- where I went in, I think it was 1997 was my first trip there. And that trip was an unmitigated disaster. Like everything you can imagine going wrong happened from, you know, being, being in a horrible car accident to, like, to getting robbed my first night to being on a boat that sank. Like everything, I lost my camera, like everything went wrong. But I still managed to see, I was like 30 over 30 types of lemurs in, in four or five weeks, Damn. which is incredible. I mean, how many countries can you go to to see where you could see, you know, 35 primate species and, you know, well in a year, let alone a few weeks. Yeah. Gee, how'd you get robbed? That sounds terrifying. Um, yeah. So my first night in Madagascar, I hadn't slept for, it was like three or four days straight and I was just completely exhausted. And I was staying in this little village off an Island, off another Island, off Madagascar. And, um, I was just so tired. Normally I would kind of, um, when I'm, when I'm staying in like a hut like that, I would sort of security proof my room, but I was just so tired. I couldn't do it. And so I just got in bed, like got in bed, got in the mosquito night and just went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I heard this noise and it sounded like someone was in my, in my room or in my hut. But, um, it's really hard to tell with a grass hut, whether someone's inside or outside. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was kind of there. I'm trying to figure stuff out and mosquito night. You can't really see very well. Um, and then I heard the, the door close because I had like a wooden door. And, um, so I got, I'm like, Oh God, someone's in my room. And so I, I, I got up and felt around and my bags weren't there. And then I thought, well, this may be just be a dream. Yeah. <laughs> I was also like on Larium and, you know, so you're having like, weird dreams and stuff. Right. So I was like, okay, maybe it's just a dream. I'll wake up in the morning and it'll be fine. So I woke up in the morning and yeah, I didn't have any bags. So, um, Jeez. 
Yeah, I got robbed of everything. But I had slept with my passports. I had my passport and I had a little bit of money in the clothes I was wearing. My camera, like everything was gone. Well, at least it wasn't like an uh, aggressive. Yeah, that job. was certainly. But then, you know, I had to go through this re- process of going to the other island to like report the robbery and then basically being held, like being interrogated for hour after hour. And then on the boat ride back, my boat sank. I had to, you know, get rescued. I mean, just like one thing after another. Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy trip. And then when I wanted to leave the country, because there's a somehow my police record got back to the capital, basically the security people at the airport tried to extort more money from me. But at least they could say, well, no, they stole my money. Yeah, they've stolen everything from me and I lost it in the river when my boat sank. Yeah, but it was several hours of, you know, at the airport of being interrogated. So again, it was just like yeah. <laughs> the whole trip from start to beginning was was pretty rough. What's Larry? Is Larry in the malaria? Um, it is, yeah. So it's not recommended anymore because people have very adverse reactions. Um, I don't really have adverse reactions. I just have really crazy dreams. So I actually don't mind larium, but it's also not good for your liver. It's like a psychedelic <laughs> experience. It can be, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned um, back when you were younger that you were able to spend time with an indigenous culture, um, in the rainforest and that the, the oil spill unfortunately happened there. And what I really liked was you referred to them as like your friends and that you were upset about like what could have happened to your friends and what their livelihood was going to be like as somebody who has spent so much time across the world with indigenous cultures and in the developing world, as well as obviously living right outside of San Francisco, is, is there something through that experience that, um, I think, oftentimes we end up living in these isolated bubbles where we don't really totally understand interactions with each other and kind of how we're all in this together as a human species. Is there something, I know this is a very broad question, but is there something in those experiences that you feel has been very grounding in terms of how you relate to other worlds or when you go to these areas, how you relate with these indigenous cultures? I guess it's just, is there, what is the biggest learning piece from having spent so much time with so many different types of people. I think to you, that might be a weird question, but for, for a lot of us who live in our bubbles, it's, it's, it's hard to totally understand what that's like. I think just exposure to different belief systems and ideas and points of view is really important. So I think that's one thing that my parent, I'm very grateful for my parents for is that they introduced me to all these different people um, and places, which allowed me to see, different perspectives on things. And so I think what that does is it builds a level of respect for other cultures and other viewpoints and things like that. So you won't necessarily have, I mean, I'm less likely to have sort of like a knee jerk reaction to a new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm also a bit of a contrarian, but that said, like I, I can understand or I try to see like what's driving somebody and you know, where they're coming from on something. And I think as a journalist, it's also really helpful. Sure. Um, so I think that's been the main takeaway for me. Yeah, because I think in conservation, especially, it's such an important perspective to have because you always hear about like an elephant being poached and out here it's like, oh man, I couldn't imagine who could go in and kill such a beautiful, majestic creature. But I also understand that if you're in a tough socioeconomic village and you're struggling to put food on the fa- table for your family and somebody offers you money to go and do that, that might be an option that you want to take. And the same thing for harvesting palm oil or burning charcoal in some of these deforested areas. Do you, having the boots on the ground, I think is such a unique perspective from a conservation angle. What do you think are some of the better ways to alleviate some of those stresses on wildlife populations? I know that's again, very broad from culture to culture, but do you think that there's something from a conservation perspective that can help to alleviate some of those concerns that will stop some of those pressures? Um, I think you have to create positive incentives for people to not poach wildlife. Um, and so I think you have to, I mean, every situation is potentially different. So there's not going to be like one solution for everything, but, um, you know, in order to change people are people, it's hard to change human behavior. So you kind of need to have a carrot. Like the stick is not going to go, is is not going to necessarily work every time. So if you're arresting people for being poachers, um, you're not really necessarily addressing the underlying issue, especially if the poachers are like local people who are trying to feed themselves. So what are the alternative livelihoods or what can they do instead of poaching? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, it's a tough question and that's what conservation wrestles with. I mean, you know, conservation ultimately is around, you know, people's behavior. It's not just, you know, saving animals. It's like, how do you get people to, um, you know, to take certain actions. And so I think that's something that people forget sometimes mm-hmm. not being involved day to day. And it's really challenging. Um, I mean, just for example, like in Cambodia, um, a few years ago, I visited a project and, um, they have a big problem with snaring. And so people go out and they snare wildlife and then, um, you know, they consume, they consume certain things for themselves. They sell a lot to the market and, um, you know, they're trying to develop ecotourism and, um, but there's certain members of the community who, um, are just, they're, you know, they're used to poaching and that's what they do. And, um, so one of the things we talked about was trying to create an incentive system for, um, reducing poaching. And one of the ideas was to, um, they, they have camera traps all over the place, but was to, um, essentially create a fund where money would be paid in for each camera trap photo of certain species. So a pangolin oh, might be cool. worth like a hundred bucks or something a month or I don't know, whatever it is. And so, um, you can incentivize, um, certain species not being poached because they're worth more money. And so with that, and so the money could be paid into a communal fund. The reason you have it be a communal fund is that it creates peer pressure within the system to change the behavior of bad actors. So if um, a community knows that if you know the penguins you know show up in the videos, um, they're going to get more money, um, and then they can use that money to build like a cell phone tower or whatever, mm-hmm. um, or like fix a broken bridge or something. Um, they will try to persuade that you know the known poachers in the community not to poach anymore. Oh, that's really interesting. I like that a lot. It's kind of similar to that orangutan uh, health and harmony where they were finding out that a lot of the communities in this uh, island in Indonesia were, I forget if it was, de- I think it was deforestation for charcoal or something, but the big driving factor was healthcare was so poor in the area that if you broke your arm, you're at risk of dying. So Health and Harmony went in there and said, hey, we'll, we'll provide free healthcare for everybody in the community, but if one tree goes down, we're not going to do it or something to that effect. And it's been incredibly successful. So I think that's like a really good point is it's just to change behavior, it, it has to be incentivized on one end or the other, whether it be communally or just like from a sheer monetary standpoint. Um, well, that's interesting. But I wanted to I wanted to go real quick into some rapid fire questions that I ask at the end of every podcast that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Uh, the first is next five years, like what's your guiding light? What is it strictly Mongo Bay? Is there another project you're working on? Like if you could ideally have the next five years go as well as possible, uh, what are you working on and where's Mongo Bay at? Yeah. So Mongo Bay is expanding pretty rapidly. So, um, I mean, just for example, this year we're, we've hired staff in Madagascar, Brazil, Philippines, Sri Lanka, uh, and Africa outside North Africa. So essentially, some of those could become full-fledged bureaus like we have in India, Latin America, mm-hmm. and Indonesia. So those are big projects for us. We're also scaling up video. So we've taken some baby steps into video, but we have big ambitions on that front. Um, there's some other Manga Bay-related projects that we're, um, that we're pursuing um, that are so, – so one is uh, a few months ago so, – so we did this event last year, which was called Transforming Conservation, and the goal was to look at some of the – some of the, the, the things that are holding conservation back. So if you look at sort of various sectors like education, poverty alleviation, healthcare, um, conservation is not advancing as quickly on an international scale on, uh, for those, you know, as an issue. And so mm-hmm. what are sort of the systemic things that are holding back conservation? And so, um, you know, one of, one of the, I mean, there are a bunch of things, but one of the things is sort of um, understanding what works and what doesn't work in conservation and then sort of reporting on that and making people aware of, of you know, how to be effective. And so one of the things that kind of emerged out of that process um, was um, this uh, idea of, of digging more into cons- what works and what doesn't work in conservation. And so um, we published a paper uh, earlier this year on bioacoustics. And the idea is, is that... Um, Satellites provide great proxy data for uh, what's happening in the forest and other types of ecosystems, you know, from above, but what's actually happening below the canopy. And mm-hmm. right now there's no, there really aren't great ways to do that, to, to do assessments at scale. So you have camera traps, but, um, you know, camera traps are limited spatially. Um, they're generally not networked yet. I mean, that will change in the future. 
Um, otherwise, you have people doing field surveys, which, um, again, are really important and great, but it's not sort of um, a scalable um, solution at this point. And so the idea is, is that if we could add more, um, more sensors and ability to sort of track things, um, that could be really valuable. And so we see bioacoustics as being potentially that. And so um, this sort of bioacoustics concept was floated in this, in this paper of creating the central repository, and now that's moving forward. So it's not a oh, cool. project. But Mongabe can leverage it and do reporting around it. So we're trying to get um, go more deeply into data journalism, and so bioacoustics is one of the areas. Another area is, is satellite data. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Dr. Jody Rowley in Australia? She has the Frog ID project. Yes. Yeah. She, yeah she, I thought that was so cool because it's similar to what you were saying, but almost like crowdsourced or open sourced in a way where, for listeners that you can go with your cell phone, basically record any frog noise that you hear in Australia, get sent over to, to Jody and her, her and her team actually go in right now. It's manually and listen to, to get a better sense of populations and where they are. But I ideally, like you were saying, like building a huge repository that you eventually start building in like a neural network to start understanding how to l- recognize certain sounds. And there's like a certain level of like machine learning integrated into there where you can just continuously feed and get a better sense as to what's out there because I, I can imagine that doing some population surveys or studies where you actually have to identify or camera trap an animal is a lot harder than just hearing the sound in the forest. Yeah. I mean, so the vision for this would be to have streaming uh, devices in the forest. So you're capturing all this data in real time and then oh. it's being put into the central repository and then you can run algorithms against it. So if you wanted to see like gibbon population trends across the world, you'd be able to see um, gibbons historically. So you'd, you'd use data like I mean, there's a lot of data collected from 60, 70, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. So that could be baseline data. But then you can see comparisons between, you know, what's happening trend wise. But then you can also start to compare different conservation interventions and even different conservation groups. So if you have like two conservation groups that are working in a similar ecosystem, you can start to say, well, you know, this group in, in this group's area that they manage, um, you know, you have, these are the trends that, with these species. Um, you can start to compare like a payments for ecosystem services project versus a national park versus like community forestry area and look at that. Wow, so that's you can also measure, you can also measure recovery. So there's a lot of efforts to do landscape restoration. You can start to say, well, he, he, you know, we can see that this system is, is recovering and, you know, because these the certain baselines are being, are being hit. Um, and then from like a law enforcement, uh, real time action aspect, um, because you have, you can get this data, um, very quickly, you can take, uh, you can have real time interdiction essentially. So if you hear a gunshot, chainsaw, car engine, certain things, you could have that sent as an alert to a local authority or, you know, a community and it'll, you know, there's, there, it'll be triangulated. So you'll know where it's happening. You can have someone go out and see what's happening on the ground. That's insanely powerful. What is it? What is the timeline for getting that up and running? Well, so I mean, obviously like you'd be scaling it, but is there any like, um, kind of early like project phase, like pilot going on right now? Yeah. So it's happening right now. So rainforest connection is, uh, has devices, uh, in several pilot projects around the world. And now they're starting to build a repository. Um, and so like the dream would be to have this bioacoustic system around the world that's expanding to more and more places, especially as internet connectivity gets better. Mm -hmm. Um, combined with uh, camera traps. Uh, potentially, you have the devices even providing um, connectivity for the camera traps because you have the sound devices which are mounted at 100 feet in the canopy, so they have much better reception than a you know camera trap on the ground. Um, and then satellite data. So you combine those three things, you get a much fuller picture of, of what's happening with ecosystems and the health of ecosystems, but also the species within those ecosystems. That's crazy. What is the satellite data looking at? Is that that's just looking at overall forest cover or can it actually identify animals from like over, like taking images of the actual, the landscape. Uh, so it's more landscape level. So, I mean like planet labs is generally capturing like three meter resolution on a daily basis of every point on earth, but it's also things of looking at monitoring coral reefs on a daily basis. So got it right now, there's no way to monitor coral reefs. Um, globally, it's all based on proxy data, but with, um, this new system that's being built using satellite data or using um, uh, Planet Labs, they can start to measure bleaching and sedimentation on a daily basis of all coral reefs in the world. Wow. 
that's going to be exciting to watch. And what, what is the, do they have a sense of what the, uh, like consumer level visual in terms of like being able to look at wildlife population in real time or listen to sounds of the rainforest? Is there any way that like an individual is going to be able to interact with that? That'd be really cool. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I mean, part of the vision is having that built in, but you have to be careful about the information you provide because it could also be a roadmap for poachers. Yes. So, good point. So, I mean, that's part of the system is, is thinking about security levels and permissions and whatnot, but you know, I can definitely envision something where you could listen to giving calls in real time from Borneo, but maybe you're not, maybe you're not getting the GPS coordinates. So yeah, you're not triangulating people to go shoot hornbills out of the air or something like that. Yeah. And the nice thing about the repository too, is that, that as the machine learning gets better, you can apply it to data that's already been collected. So, um, you know, you, if you've got a really good signature for, or if you have a signature for like a certain bird species that's improving over time, you can go back and look at data from 10 years ago and just run, you know, run the algorithm against the data set and it gets added to it. So the system could constantly improve over time, basically. That's amazing. I'm super excited to watch it. Can you just say the name again of that group that just a uh, oh, rainforest connection? Yeah. So rainforest connection is doing the, the bioacoustics component of this, but I mean, there's going to be a lot of different entities involved. I mean, there's all sorts of researchers who are collecting data who, you know, could feed into the system. In on that note, for for listeners, I always like to have guests talk about maybe like the top couple nonprofits that you would recommend donating to if you were in. And obviously, can people support Manga Bay now that it's a nonprofit as well? How there's just so many groups doing so much impactful work. If there's just a couple organizations that you'd like to highlight, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, so the group you mentioned, Health and Harmony, is still my uh, my favorite conservation initiative that I've encountered so far. Um, so they work in Indonesia and they're, but they are expanding to other geographies. Um, the wildlife conservation network does really great work. So they, um, they aggregate, I mean, they kind of identify top sort of conservation entrepreneurs and they support them. Um, so those are really two, you know, standout groups. So you want to do something kind of hyper local. Um, Akate Amazon Conservation is a really interesting group. They're working in the Peruvian Amazon with the Matses people. Um, so I like them a lot. Um, yeah, but again, there are a lot of great groups out there. Um, so I'd encourage you to, um, I mean, I tend to think that smaller, that smaller groups are doing some of the most interesting work, but mm-hmm. also kind of the other end of the spectrum are kind of these multi-group uh, collaborations. So like Global Forest Watch is a great platform because it involves 70 or 80 stakeholders. I mean, it's convened by World Resource Institute, but um, it's, you know, it's doing a really, it's re- doing really impressive work. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, for listeners, I'll link in the show notes to all of these specific organizations so you can check them out and learn more. Uh, favorite book and favorite documentary in either the wildlife or conservation space? Um, that's a tough question. I would say uh, my favorite um book i mean anything by david Quammen uh has been very inspirational to me um so he you know he was he's a magazine he's done a lot of writing for magazines he's and he's put those into books he's also written books but um i always feel inspired and very educated after reading something by him um favorite documentary uh i thought varunga was really powerful mm-hmm. so it was an amazing story a very inspirational um, and it felt, I felt like it had a, a big impact. So, um, those are standouts for me. What's your favorite animal? Oh, that's tough. Um, I feel like that's like something a five-year-old would ask another five-year-old on the playground, but I'm always interested. Um, yeah, I guess I might say the eye, eye lemur. So again, it's a very unusual lemur. People thought I was a, a cat or a, or wrote it when they first discovered it, but now they know it's a lemur. So, um, yeah, I'd say the aye, aye. And my last question is if you could take a billboard out on a major highway that disseminates one message in 10 words or less, what would you put on that billboard? Uh, eat less meat. I like that. Simple and to the point. Yeah. Cause it's something that's po- it's possible for people to do. Um, you know, Cattle, cattle production is the largest driver of deforestation globally. And, um, you know, there are also new substitutes to meat that are getting more and more interesting every day. So 
Yeah, the um, Impossible Burger is incredible. Yeah, and then I think also lab-grown meat might be, you know, is 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 going to be a big thing in the future. So, you know, even if you're not willing to sacrifice meat, you can maybe have meat without, um, you know, sacrificing animals. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how that plays out. I think that'll be an incredible technology. Um, and lastly, I'm going to link obviously to Manga Bay and everything um, in the in the show notes. Is there any other resources that you would like to kind of point listeners to, to, to check out your work and, or anything else that might be coming on the horizon? Um, no, I mean, I think Manga Bay is a pretty sprawling site. There's a lot there. Um, that would be the main thing. I mean, outside of Manga Bay, I really encourage people to use platforms like global forest watch and global fishing watch because they're, they're, they're incredible in terms of, you know, learning about different ecosystems and issues, uh, and getting some really great data. Well, awesome. Rhett, thanks so much for taking the time. I think what you've built is absolutely incredible over the last 20 years and congratulations on all the success and thank you for all the conservation and important work that you do. Listeners, thanks so much for taking the time to listen as always. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time For all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.